Hello and welcome to Seeing Them Given, the show that looks at the laws of the game and the referees who enforce them. This week, fans taking things much too far in Scotland and France. How should a referee respond? When exactly should a penalty be retaken? And with another big week of European football on the horizon, what's different about refereeing outside of England? I'm Mike McCarthy, a football journalist, still salivating after witnessing Maxwell Cornet's volley at Turf Moor on Saturday. Uh, with me, as always, a man who's had the pleasure of witnessing some of the game's most famous goals as the man in the middle, former FIFA referee and ex-head of the PGMOL, Keith Hackett. How are you doing, Keith? I'm doing fine, Mike. Great to be back on the show. Yeah, speaking of special goals, actually, by the way, Mm. I know we've spoken about this before, but um, many people will remember, of course, you were the uh, referee for the FA Cup final replay and saw Ricky Villa do marvellous things in that that game. What was it like to view it from your position? Well, I think any referee, if you take up refereeing and you run about on the park or even in the big crowd stadiums, big crowded stadiums, uh, you've got the best seat in the house. And if you work a bit, run a bit and get into the right positions, you'll see these things. And in that semi-final replay, the thing that stood out for me was that in the first game, Mike, uh, Villa didn't have a good game and he, w- he was substituted and he was... T- I remember distinctly, even though I'm in the middle of the game, a dejected Argentinian player. And remember, these were the first overseas players to enter our game, him and Ardiles, one of two others. Anyhow, he he walked down the perimeter of the pitch because the changing room then was at the end of the ground at the old Wembley Stadium, dejected, almost in tears. And then, of course, the winning goal was just amazing. I mean, he, he, he just sort of twisted and turned around the defenders, probably five five defenders, and slotted the ball over. The elation from him was unbelievable. So, you know, this is football, I think. This is about refereeing as much as it is about players. One day you can have an off game. It doesn't go well. The ball, the advantages don't materialise. Then the other game, on another game, or shortly afterwards, hopefully, it, everything comes together. So, hey, it's a bit... Peak and trough as players, and it's a bit peak and trough in in refereeing. But great, you know, I've I've been fortunate, and it, it was interesting because I saw Mo Salah score for Liverpool. I think a couple of weeks ago, before our international break, and he did something similar, but the right hand side of the penalty area. Mm. Wonderful skills when players do that, and hey, I've I've graced the fields alongside people like Maradona, Platini, Rummenigge, you know. Giorgio Canaglia out in America when he played for New York Cosmos. Um, it's endless number of the players. And, you know, uh, George Best, probably one of the world's greatest players, certainly iconic player. But that was when he was playing for Fulham and not uh, not for Manchester United. Right, right. OK. Well, I mean, from those dizzy heights, uh, can we start the show this week? Uh, with an email from Steve. Uh, hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk is where you can get in touch. Uh, Steve says this, I-, I recently completed my referee course and progressed to level seven. Uh, I've been working with many teams at my club, Ripon under 11s and uh, three to under 16s. Uh, I'm also affiliated with the Army FA and have been in the middle and on the line. I'm loving it. As a level two coach, I actually enjoy it more in the middle, says Steve. And as a new 46-year-old ref, I do my best. Uh, Steve, first of all, uh, congratulations to you and uh, all power to you for doing it. Um, At 
the grassroots level, he continues, and newly qualified. Assistance on the line is very limited and leads me to having to make plenty of calls for offsides. Uh, The assistant referee, often a volunteer slash told parent, uh, is often out of position and unable to make an offside call. So my question is, where is the ultimate position to be for making offside calls? This may be a stupid question, but in my circumstance, I'm probably not in the right position on the field of play probably watching the ball rather than the drop zone, probably looking at the active player. Often, when there is a player off the last person, I try to preempt the offside by getting in line with the play. Is that right? Uh, this, though, makes my movement very erratic, often finding myself caught up in play. So I'm not sure. Uh, love the podcast. Best wishes, Steve. Well, Steve, thanks very much for your question. Uh, best luck to uh, to you at Ripon City Panthers Juniors as well. Uh, Keith, how do we answer this then? How do you, as a referee in grassroots level, get the offsides right? Well, I think the first thing is, as a referee, Steve has asked the question. And I think even when I was an international referee, I would ask questions because we never stop learning. So I think this is a brilliant question and it shows the dilemma that grassroots referees face, the, the complexity of the offside law, the changes have tended over recent years to, to favour the, the professional game and not take into account the difficulties that the changes have made for the for the grassroots guy. I think the first thing is, don't worry about the erratic running. I think that what clearly referees have to do in the game is at times apply a dynamic sprint to recover a position. And the ideal position on offsides is level with the second rearmost defender. And that is really difficult when you, when you haven't got assistant referees. And another tip here is... That you might be faced with club linesmen. And I I always used to take the view, not being derogatory towards them, but I would always say, look, all I want from you is ball in and out of play. I wouldn't even trust them with the offside. That didn't question their integrity. I didn't want to spark any sort of riots, if you like, in terms of the big calls. (laughs) So the first first thing is to recognise the path in which a referee runs. And it's a diagonal. Many years ago, Sir Stanley Rouse at the FA came up with a, with a system. And that was corner flag to corner flag. But now it's penalty area corner to the opposite corner into penalty area. So you're, you're generally in midfield. And if you can operate that at pace at times and move out wide occasionally, then it'll, it'll be a fail-safe sort of scenario in terms of the the flow path in which you run it's interesting about offsides because i used to run parallel to the touchline up and down i didn't run a diagonal i would run parallel with the touchline and that enabled me if you like the shortest distance to be able to judge offsides because invariably it's offside decisions that create the biggest sort of furore from spectators now, okay, what you've then got to do is squeeze play and be prepared to move towards the other touchline when as play develops. But generally, I think it's a natural evolving scenario where the referee will gain, Steve will gain experience, but, he, but he's thinking and, he's, and what he's doing now is right. So he's not got to change that. He doesn't have to worry about the erratic running. Because that is him regaining his position. Others will have a view. But I think that if you stick 
you know, if you've got assistant referees, you've got guys who are club linesmen, then run the diagonal and then sprint to get that side-on view. Not easy. But when a referee talks about, I'm looking at the dropping zone, I'm moving to the dropping zone, and the knowledge he's got already in his short career as a referee, his football knowledge is coming into play. The one thing he's got to do differently is, and I always make this comment, and that is, as players and spectators, invariably we're watching the ball. And I make the point, as I've said before, the ball never commits an offence. So ignore the flight of the ball. Guess where it's going to be dropping into that zone. Get the side on elevation where the players, where the ball's going to drop and be mindful that offences take place often before the ball comes into the zone area. You know, that push, that steading, treading on the toe, the, the sort of grabbing of the shirt and spinning off. The, the use of the illegal use of the elbow, even the back kick, can sometimes be off-putting in that centre-forward, centre-off, forward defender dropping zone. I think the other thing that I guess we should say as well is I know Steve will want to get every decision right, won't he? But offsides at grassroots level, I mean, you're never going to get them all right. And, and, and don't kick yourself. I think is something we should reiterate as well, because I'm sure people will want you to get them everything right, and of course we will, but it's just impossible, isn't it? Well, you know, um, what does an ice cream van have? To sell ice creams, the more ice creams he sells on a nice warm summer day is all about the noise he makes in terms of the, the horn or the chimes of the ice cream van. When a referee makes a call and he's, he is unsure, He's in, he's in the acting game. You haven't forgotten your lines, but you might have made an error. And this is where body language has to be exaggerated. I'm, I'm, my facial expression is I'm, I'm comfortable with the decision I've given. I'm positive with the decision. Everybody else around you might be querying what you've given. And inside, you might be thinking, that's a bit iffy, but you've given it. And you're selling the decisions. And that's what refereeing's about. Sell the decisions. You're the guy that has a greater knowledge, unless there's an assessor on the touchline, than, than those people that are watching the game. And just enjoy it. Steve, thanks so much for your question. More of your correspondence a little bit later in the show. Uh, I wanted to get onto this, though, because two separate incidents of fans... Uh, being very negatively involved in the game this weekend. Uh, starting in Scotland, uh, we saw Ojo being sent off uh, for an altercation with a Dundee United supporter who uh, shoved the Aberdeen midfielder. Ojo went back towards the crowd and that was enough for him to get another booking and see himself sent off. We also saw at the weekend Dimitri Payet hit by a water bottle. Marseille's game abandoned because the referee couldn't guarantee the safety of the players. Both really disappointing and in the Pyatt case shocking in terms of what we saw this weekend as, as a referee there's two very different calls that have had to be made here first the the booking for Ojo was very controversial I don't mm. know what you made of that Keith I mean it, it was I, I have to say I, I thought Ojo showed some remarkable restraint but the laws of the game are the laws of the game I guess I think what we've got to understand is to why we have this caution mandatory caution for a player who leaves the field of play to celebrate. 
uh, in particular when he moves towards the spectators in this case. Now, in fairness to Audio, I feel slightly sorry for him because I think he moved at pace. He was coming toward into the penalty area and continued his run. But then what made it difficult for the referee was that he stepped over the first line of advertising audience. So he's now effectively well off the field of play. Not a yard, he's several yards. Although the distance from the, the touch, the, the goal line, should I say, to the spectators is pretty close in this particular ground. So you've just got to have a duty of care. The old thing about this, shirt removal or going to the spectators to celebrate, isn't people sat in around an office saying, oh, let's kill all the joy that we have in football. This is a safety issue for the spectators. Surges of the crowd are a major dynamic that can create a lot of injury. You know, at Hillsborough, we saw the crowds continuing to roll forward and, and, and the deaths of 96 people or 97, which was, which was tragic. And more recently in America, at a pop concert, we've seen that crowd surge forward again uh, from the back to the front and creating deaths. Now, we don't want that in football. And this has part to do with it, this whole question. So the referee, you know, I've heard people, can he apply common sense? The answer is no. It's The, the player's gone over them, stepped over the mark. He's, he's got involved with the spectator, how much that spectator has said. And the referee's left with no option. Now, in the case of um, a bottle being thrown, I, you know, you always ask the question, is that premature? Is the decision premature? As the, if you like, stadium controller, the police and the army, if they're on duty, have they had sufficient time to be able to ensure that it doesn't happen again? So for me, this is about experience and education. And I, I, I would have hoped that in that situation, a bottle is thrown. Yep, that's an offence. The referee's got to take action. I'd be going to the side of the pitch asking for the ground controller and the security officer, chief of police, to discuss it. And then I would ask for a line of police to be facing the crowd close to the area where that object was thrown. And then I'd continue. So I wouldn't abandon because abandoning means that someone throwing a bottle has actually won an argument and spoiled the, the joy for the rest. Well, I mean, I guess we don't know whether the referee has has asked for those things and and not had the guarantees that he wanted. Perhaps, I mean, I guess that that is potentially a possibility. I think ultimately there are there are several considerations. You're not in a local park here. You're in a you're in a big stadium. I've refereed in that stadium, so I know how big it is. And uh, egress from the ground, the safe egress of spectators, is important. And you know. We delay the abandonment at times in order for preparation to be made with regard to security around the ground so that safe egress takes place. Things like transport and all those sort of things have to be put in place. Um, and, you know, traffic has to be altered, and sometimes that's a technical management system of the, of the lights, traffic lights, etc. So I think that let's hope that he did go through those processes. And, and there were a step process that said, I didn't go from that bottle being thrown and I'm going to abandon. 
I, I, you know, I'm going to go and, and try to protect the safety of the uh, of the game and make certain it, it, it's uh, policed correctly. Let's go back to the Premier League then. Uh, Burnley Crystal Palace. There was a big moment with the game at three all, sensational game at Turf Moor. It was a it very was. very pleased to be uh, to be watching that this weekend. Uh, Crystal Palace, though, defender Anderson with a challenge on Chris Wood. There is a booming 60-yard kick downfield, which leaves Simon Hooper well behind play. And then there are hands on Wood, who goes down maybe 25 yards from goal. If Anderson's not there, go back to conversations we've had in previous weeks. He's through on goal. It is denial of an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. But a foul is not called kick. So, well, what did you make of it? Well, the first thing is you've made the observation about Simon Hooper. Now, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, he's been caught well well short of, of pace and he's, he's a million miles away from the decision. Now, the old thing about VAR is it can come into play and it can say that is a clear and obvious error. I'm coming in. So here are two officials that have actually got it so wrong. It's untrue. Now... You know, I went, I went through this as a referee sending Tony Gale off, and we mentioned that fairly frequently because I, people will never forget. The reality is, at that time, before the incident of Tony Gale, we were looking at a cynical challenge, something with a bit of weight in it, something that was a bit painful for the recipient. And we, it was made very clear to us that a small foul, a careless challenge, is sufficient to... If other criteria, moving towards goal, goal-scoring opportunity, um, if you like, uh, probability of controlling the, the ball, all these things come into play. And as a consequence, that's a red card offence. Today, tomorrow, Saturday, any time. And, uh, and I, I, a real bad mark against this referee for not, for not taking action and VAR for not coming in. So, okay, Hooper's caught short. VAR saying, well, he's wiped it out. Is it a clear and obvious error? Well, I'm telling you that's a clear and obvious error. The one thing that I just wanted to raise, sort of maybe in mitigation, and and you can tell me I'm wrong, I'm sure you will, uh, is that Anderson, there's not an awful lot of contact. There are maybe hands on the shoulder. It doesn't feel like an awful lot of force is used by Anderson in, in in the challenge itself. And I remember at the start of the season, referees were told it's not just about contact, it's about the, the consequences of contact. So is there any mitigation for that here? No, I think that, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I understand where you're coming from and, um, you know, it, the decision does seem harsh. But, but in reality, footballers play with a, with a feet. And you've actually just explained correctly and accurately that uh, uh, that Anderson held on to his opponent. And I, I don't go with this amount of force and all this nonsense. I mean, we, we've had this explained by the PJMOL, and it's, it's absolute nonsense. I mean, we saw Tyrone Mings in the Aston Villa game before, before the international break have his shirt pulled. Uh, by a good 18 inches off, off off his back. And somebody, spokesman from the PJML, saying, well, it wasn't enough. I mean, what do you expect? A pull is a pull. Uh, holding is a holding offence. These are offences. So, yeah, it sounds harsh, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm with Sean Darcy on this. 
he should have had a pen. His team should have had a, uh, or should I say, Anderson of Crystal Palace should have been sent off. Interestingly, and I didn't get to use this stat at the weekend, but given I researched it, I did want to put this out there. No Burnley player has ever been sent off at Turf Moor in the Premier League. They've played 105 home games now in the Premier League. It's never happened. Uh, so, I, I mean, there's absolutely no rhyme or reason as to why that might be, but I just thought I'd bring it up because uh, who knows? When it, when it does happen, we'll be able to say they're the first. Um, right. <laughs> this from Mark. It's a great question. This is about the Manchester United game at Watford this weekend. Uh, Mark says, just want to say, uh, loving the show. Thank you very much. We will read your emails, even if you don't write that down. Uh, it's been great to hear the discussions about the weekend's matches. I've been promoting it with my referee branch here in Sydney, Australia. Lots of expats who like a good whinge when their team don't perform. I hope there weren't too many Manchester United fans in your referee branch uh, this weekend, uh, Mark. Uh, got a question about the Watford Man United, uh, the penalty uh, near the start of the game. Clearly a foul by McTominay, but I found it strange uh, surrounding the retake, uh, says Mark. IFAB Law 14 on penalty kicks says it's clear that any encroachment by an attacking player and a goal, then you retake. But Saar missed the penalty and then Watford scored with the follow-up by Kiko. So why were Watford offered a retake when the law says a missed penalty and then encroachment by the attacking team is an indirect free kick to the defending team? The replay with VAR clearly shows Kiko was inside the box. So am I correct in picking that up? I'm a bit confused as to why the retake happened. Or, says Mark, am I just wrong in reading the laws of the game? Well, what's the answer here, Keith? Well, I think I think it's brilliant that somebody actually examines the, the laws in that in that situation. And, and he's read the law absolutely spot on. Uh, but what I think is missed is that I can only assume the reason for the retake was... You know, in the case of just an attacker going in, then in that situation, it is an indirect free kick. But if players from both teams encroach, then it's a retake. And this is what happened. This is how the referee has come to that judgment. He's seen, in his mind, you know, and I've I've not checked it. I've just had that question, so I've not had the replay to have another look. But I will do later on. But it, it but this is the only reason. He can order the retake uh, in this situation. So for me, he's made that judgment that both players have come in, and it and, and it's part of it, it is part of law fourteen. If a player of both team offends, the kick is retaken, unless a player commits a more serious offence, e.g., illegal fainting, that fainting, that sort of thing. So, a, a really good observation. Well, there we go. And by the way, uh, Mark, if you do want us to have a look at any uh, particular controversial moments in uh, in Australian football and send them across, we will gladly look at them here. Uh, we like to take decisions uh, from around the world. Uh, but we are going to go to Wanfield uh, next, Liverpool-Arsenal. An interesting moment for Michael Oliver to have to deal with, with Arteta and Klopp very much, well, yards from each other, lots of verbals going on. Nothing physical, but Michael Oliver getting involved and making sure that both received yellow cards. Uh, Policing the technical area is a thankless task, I think, most of the time. But when a referee has to get involved as well, Keith, uh, what do you make of the the way that was handled? I think the fourth official, Andy Madley, and Michael Oliver handled this brilliantly. And and first of all, you saw Andy Madley, biggish guy, um, getting involved. And that's difficult. 
But I think both Klopp and Arteta were helped by their own staff because the, the assistants and the technical guys came running to, to ensure that there was no physical contact. So there was no um, physical contact, but it was unseemly. It's unacceptable. It's not good for the image of the game. So the thing that I thought was quite brilliant here, a brilliant piece of refereeing, was Michael Oliver. We forget his age, but what we don't forget, forget is his maturity and his handling of this situation and others. So what he's done is he's walked across. He hasn't run in. He hasn't got involved. He stayed on the pitch. He's let the fourth official and everybody else calm down. He doesn't gesticulate. He remains calm. His whole body language is neutral. He calls both managers to him. He has his quiet say, shows the yellow card. I thought it was brilliantly handled. Great piece of referee. Um, I'm just trying to think when exactly the fourth official was introduced and whether you would have ever had to have dealt with it, Keith. Would you? I mean, it seems like a pretty thankless task to me. The first thing I used to say to my assistants, there were linesmen then, was, look, let us concentrate on the, on the football field and not get too involved and wrapped up in what's going on off it in terms of managers and players who want to have their two penneth. Because maybe I'm cynical at times, but there's always that risk that the game's flowing, everything's happening, and all's well in the in the game, and then all of a sudden there's a bust-up and it breaks the momentum of the game. You know, I can remember being the, the observer, assessor at Bolton Wanderers when Sam Allardyce and, and Phil Brown were the mani- a manager and assistant manager. And um, Phil Brown, there was the, the, you know, the defending team, his team, Bolton, were got caught short in defence. They'd, they'd come really out and the attack was on. And Phil Brown threw on a second ball. I, 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 I distinctly dis- incident. Yeah, I distinctly <laughs> remember that. And I, you know, um, okay, the referee dealt with it. He didn't. Again, he didn't get, didn't go over the top. But yeah, I think okay, he's got to come in on that type of one. But but I think uh, you don't want these things to happen. And and sadly, you know, it's like the the player's got a second yellow and red something off the field of play, come on, stay on the field. And you managers, I know you're passionate, um, but don't go over the top. Before we go, I wanted to get into another big week of European football, Keith, that's coming up. Uh, huge, significant matches in the in the Champions League, Europa League as well. And one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet is the differences in expectations for referees between, say, refereeing in the Premier League or indeed the Champions League and the Europa League. Um, UEFA uh, have got their own ideas and, and and the way that they want things to be done, presumably. I know certainly from a from a marketing standpoint, when I go to you know Leicester City, the, the King Power Stadium is completely rebranded because yes. King Power is not a sponsor of UEFA, so it has to become the Leicester City Stadium, for example. And uh, every single thing of branding has to be completely removed just for the game and then put back for the weekend for the you know the premier league game you that they they are meticulous in many things so what are they like with referees i think much the same um you're right about the marketing and the branding um i can remember even in my uh opening 
in the opening game in 88 of the Euro Championships, this was Brazil, uh, sorry, West Germany v Italy in Dusseldorf. Coming up the steps, and I fortunately I've been out onto the pitch, coming up the steps was a, um, a Lerpak uh, sign at the side of the pitch. And we were expected to step over it. And, <laughs> right. and, and, I, and I've gone absolutely no way. So I've then got the marketing people of UEFA saying it has to be here. And I'm saying no. Uh, and this is where then they're saying, well, we've got a million euros for this, this sign. And I'm going, I don't care. That's your problem. Move it. And I had it moved. Um, so the branding takes on an old, old difference. The sort of pre-preparation is the detail. On the morning of the match, there's a meeting. And in that meeting, you attend it. There's representative of both teams. There's the fire brigade. There's there's the health, if you like, ambulance um, and security. And a, there is a countdown clock there. So there's a sheet that you get, which which actually says the time that you are going to leave the hotel and arrive at the ground, all timed with police escorts, police outriders, both team coach and referee and his colleagues. So great to, to be in a car that's got police outriders, etc. And you arrive, at, uh, you arrive at the ground at a specific time, and then you go through a series of procedures. But in that 10 o'clock meeting, you're checking the colours of the shirts, any uh, wayward advertising, the balls, all, all the, the lighting, is there a generator on hand? So, all the, the, so there's a lot of detail. And even where the home spectators are, the away spectators are, etc. In terms of the game, um, you're going through, you know, a series of learning and education. UEFA are really good at getting the, the message across. Uh, in terms of you attend meetings in NEON, as a group of referees, and you, you, you attend lectures, seminars, video clips, etc. And they will even send you video clips to look at so that you're getting uniformity of interpretation. And you're stricter. The, the, there's a tighter level of control because, you know, you've got different temperaments. You know, you might have the, the sort of laid-back Germanic style against the Italian, Spanish, Latin temperament that can come into play uh, with just gesticulations and all that goes that looks far worse than it is. There's a referee observer. So he's a former uh, international referee. I've done that job myself. Uh, and he's with you all the time. So he's looking at security for you, all the sort of things, integrity issues that, that apply. And there is a match delegate who is checking the crowd, checking everything else. So you've got two guys from UEFA well represented. And there's a, there is accountability in terms of the performance. Yeah, well, this is something I wanted to ask about because when you say it's stricter, I mean, it's one of the things that fans immediately notice about whenever their club gets into Europe that this sort of thing happens. And so how does that accountability work? And if you don't tow the UEFA line on, on refereeing, are you out on... <laughs> without another game to, to do for, for a long time? How does it work? Well, I mean, the, the thing is, in Europe, if you, if you have a poor performance, you don't see a game for that season. 
You know, so when people said to me when I suspended referees or dropped them into the championship or football league division one and two, uh, they said I was very harsh. I wasn't. I was actually applying a level of accountability that exists in Europe. And and I think that with that um, comes a greater uniformity of interpretation of the laws of the game. And, you know, there is a system whereby, you know, it, it's very clear that, you you know, when you're new on the list, you, you go into what is termed core. So you go to Neon, you talk all the things, not just about refereeing the game, but managing an event. Um, and of course, you get you get feedback from the assessor, the match observer, immediately after the game. You've got a lot of detail. There's a technician there that that wants to know the cautions and what for. They're already doing that, and therefore they confirm the timing. So I think that I think here in England, you know, I mean, fitness as well is is really important. They they um, they've had a guy in there even. He was there when I was a referee, actively in eighty one ninety one. Professor Werner Helsen, who uh, was a professor at uh, Louvain University in Belgium, and he set that tone in terms of referee fitness. And, hey, I, I bought into that immediately when I took the PGMR over. And, and now I think that we need referees that are less, less, uh, less fit as they used to be. I, I wonder as well, you know, to... To get to those levels, how much you had to adapt your refereeing style uh, within UEFA? Was there much that you needed to change to to make sure that you know the the UEFA delegate who was looking after you was was happy with what you were doing? And and how how did that work? Well, I've always said that a referee is his own man, has to be his own man or a woman. Now that we've got more women referees, and uh, take the advice of the advice the, the the observer or assessor post match. Don't let them influence you pre-match. Don't worry about them during the course of the game. Do your own thing. If if you're prepared well and consistent, then you'll get the bigger games. Um, I, I was fortunate. You know, English referees are, are generally well, uh, you know, have a good reputation in Europe. And I think that that follows through. So, yeah, I, th- I think that it's, it's a great experience. You know, I, I mean... I, you go to Bernabeu, you know, you, you you go to Munich Stadium, Poland, you know, I refereed in Gdansk when it was the uprising, Gdansk v Juventus, um, when no English person was allowed in Poland. and But I was there uh, to referee a football match <laughs> along with my two colleagues, Metlek Valencia, who was then the president. So these are things that, you know, walked across Checkpoint Charlie to referee East Germany, against Switzerland when, you know, nobody was allowed out. And we generally weren't allowed in, but football opened the doors. So massive experience. You gain from those experiences, and then ideally you want referees to pass them on. But I'm, I'm very solid about the fact that if you're mobile, you're fit, and you put the physical effort in, then you'll see things better than if you don't, like Hooper with Anderson. Caught short. I don't think that's unfortunate. I think this guy lacks pace. You know, he's a follower, not a leader. Referees have to be leaders. You know, you're competitive by nature. Because, you know, in my era, I was fortunate because George Courtney, Neil Midgley, Joe Worrell, 
were referees who were colleagues, but they're also competitors. We would look at the fixture list and say, wow, he's got that game. I'd love to have had that game. And, you know, so I think if you have that competitive nature, but also analyze the referee's performances. So when you're watching, if you're a referee and you're watching referees coming into referee at Liverpool, Man City, they're, they're the top Euro- European referees on the Champions League. Watch them. Is there anything that you can learn from that you might add to your mosaic of refereeing? Don't try to copy them, but actually say, I like that little bit there. You know, I, I like what I like when I analyze somebody like Howard Webb, who was a big guy, and I was a relatively big guy as well, and suffered with Achilles tendons and ankle injuries. What I saw in Howard Webb was he put a skip. So instead of coming to a direct halt and then changing direction, Howard developed a skip to take off that pressure that goes on the knees and the ankles in in terms of his physique. But also the other side of it was he, like Kalina, could get from one penalty area to the other in 11 seconds. He was a mightily fit referee and a very good one. I like that we started this show with running styles in grassroots football. We've ended with the running style of Howard Webb. It has been an absolute pleasure as always, Keith. A reminder, if you've got a question for the show, hello at seenthemgiven.co.uk. Some great questions with this show this week. I'd love to hear from you for next time. We're on Twitter as well, at seen underscore them underscore given. If you stay with us for the whole show, thanks again for being with us. New episodes every week, normally on a Monday, although sometimes we make exceptions. Uh, and if you've enjoyed the show, uh, please do uh, what uh, others have been doing and leave us a rating or a review uh, wherever you get your podcast. It really does help other people discover the show. Uh, for now, though, Keith, thanks so much for your company. Pleasure, Mike. We will see you next time. Bye.